Scripture describes God's people as sheep in need of a shepherd. God has given pastors a special responsibility to take care of his flock. In light of Satan's schemes and the many dangers that face God's people, pastors must rely on and obey God's word in order to care well for God's people. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered, missions-minded resources at our website, radical.net. But in today's message from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-10, through 10, David Platt encourages pastors to shepherd God's people faithfully. For every follower of Christ, our ultimate hope and security and redemption is found in the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Here's David with a sermon titled, Caring Better for the Flock, from 1 Peter chapter 5. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. It's near the end of the Bible, feel free to use table contents if you need to. First Peter chapter five. As you're turning, I want to welcome those of you in Montgomery County and Loudon and Prince William. It's good to be together across Washington, D.C. around God's Word. We're coming up on our last week in this journey through the story of Scripture. So this week we will get to the end of Revelation. Lord willing, next week I'll preach on Revelation. I read somewhere that Revelation is the book of the Bible that people in the church most want to hear taught because they don't understand it. And I read that Revelation is the book of the Bible that preachers in the church least want to teach because they don't understand it either. But I love the last book of the Bible and I can't wait to show how it ties the whole story of Scripture together and gives you and me rock solid hope to bank our lives on forever. So you don't want to miss next week. But now today, my my heart is really heavy coming to this text. So let me explain what we're about to read. The beginning of 1 Peter chapter 5 is a charge to elders in the church. And the word that's used there is a reference to pastors who have responsibility for overseeing and leading the church. So the beginning is a charge for pastors to care for the church well. These verses, along with others in the Bible, make clear that pastors like me are accountable before God for how well we care or don't care for the church. And by the church, I don't mean the institution, I mean the people who make up the church. I, along with other pastors in this church, I'm going to stand before God to give an account for how I cared, we cared for every member in this church. And that is heavy. But it's also not just me or other pastors because this passage also contains instructions to members in the church. And the thrust of the passage is that we are responsible for humbly caring for each other and guarding each other from harm. So I was reading this passage this last week in our Bible reading plan, and I just started reflecting on all the ways that we, as pastors and members, can better care for each other in the church. Which means there are so many different 
directions we could go in applying this word from God in our midst. But there's one direction that's been on my heart and mind for a while that I wanna dive into specifically today, an application of what we're about to read. As I look at the church throughout our culture, this is a pressing issue, and really it's not just the church, it's a pressing issue in our culture. And that issue is the care and protection of children. So what I wanna do, sorry you don't have notes this morning, fill in the blank, you've got space, but it should be pretty easy to follow. I wanna read this passage and then I wanna show you three truths about us that we learn here. Then we're gonna pause and apply those truths to this specific issue of caring for children. Then that is gonna lead us to three truths about Jesus that I pray will encourage you, strengthen you, maybe bring healing to you, and for some of you, lead you today in a sermon where we're talking about protecting children that today some of you who are not Christians might see the beauty of Jesus for the first time and that you might decide to follow him today. And some of you might do what thousand plus people have done this year and put on one of these shirts and be baptized and say, I trust Jesus with my life. So let me, let me pray. Oh God, you know all that I have wrestled through, not just this week, but for a long time in preparation for this time. And I want to be faithful before you as a pastor to care for your church well. And not just me, but other pastors. Here at this church, at other churches, I know there are pastors from other churches who regularly visit here, some who are listening today. I, we want to be faithful shepherds in your church. And then for members, especially the brothers and sisters who make up McLean Bible Church at different campuses, we want to care well for each other. So please help us now. Please help me as I speak. Please help us as we listen to know how to better care for each other and specifically how to protect children around us. And please show in the process your supernatural care to every person listening to your word right now in ways that each of us uniquely needs. Pray that you would draw people to the care and protection that are found in Jesus alone. In his name we pray, amen. All right, let's read God's word. First Peter chapter five, verse one. The Bible says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, 
For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the, throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, three truths about us that are clear in this text. One, we are all sheep in need of a shepherd. We are all sheep in need of a shepherd. So the imagery here is clear. You have pastors who shepherd a flock in verse two. And Jesus is described as the chief shepherd in verse four. And this is imagery we see all over the Bible. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray from God, our shepherd. So there's a sense in which every one of us, regardless of whether or not you're a Christian, is a sheep in need of a shepherd because we have all gone astray from God. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But then the Bible also describes specifically the people of God and followers of Jesus as sheep. Maybe the most famous psalm in all the Bible, Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. Which is why the Bible describes the church here and other places as a flock of sheep. Which is pretty humbling when you think about it. I mean, we like to think of sheep as cute, cuddly animals. But the reality is they are not cute and they are not cuddly. Sheep are dirty. They're easily susceptible to all kinds of pests and lice and ticks and worms. Sheep have to be washed with strong chemicals to get rid of all that stuff. And they're not smart. Sheep are hopelessly, helplessly foolish. They aimlessly wander. Whenever they get into danger, they have no defense mechanism. All they can do is run, and they're slow. <laughs> and this is the imagery the Bible uses to describe us. The Bible does not refer to us in the church as jaguars or stallions, or some kind of triumphant, strong animal. No, we are aimless, wandering, dirty, dumb sheep. <laughs> but that's kind of the point. Jesus came to the world not for clean, perfect, easy people, but for sinful, dirty, messed up people like you and me. We're all sheep in need of a shepherd. And second... We are all sinners in a world of suffering. So you look across this passage and you see sin in everybody. In pastors, elders in the church who are prone to lead the church for selfish, shameful gain in a domineering way. And people in the church whose lives are marked by pride. Peter says in verse five, God opposes the proud who look out for themselves and who refuse to trust in God. When you think about it, pride is the root of all sin. Because sin says we know better than God. Our ways are better than his ways. Our thoughts are better than his thoughts. 
So we turn from God in our pride. All of us do, all of us have. And as a result of sin in and around us, we now live in a world of suffering. Now the specific context here in 1 Peter is these Christians in the first century were experiencing all kinds of unjust suffering as a result of being Christians. And all throughout this letter, Peter is acknowledging the world of suffering around them. He references that suffering in verses nine and 10 here. And though the circumstances by God's grace are different here in a country where we have freedom to worship, the reality remains the same. We are all sinners in a world of suffering. Which leads to the third truth about us. We are all susceptible to attack on all sides. We are all susceptible to attack on all sides. In verse eight, Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you heard the roar of a lion in this room or at other campuses, I am guessing that would change your posture. And that's what Peter was telling people then. And the Bible is telling us now, there is a lion in this room and at other campuses. He's just not one you can see. And he's not confined to where we're sitting right now. The Bible teaches that the devil and demons are continually on the prowl. And you'll notice the imagery here is different than what we sometimes see in the Bible. We sometimes see the devil pictured as a sly snake who sneaks up on you, but not here. Here he's a roaring lion and his aim is to devour. The word literally means to swallow up and destroy. So open your eyes. Every single person in this room and at other campuses, open your eyes and see there is a lion-like adversary right now who wants to destroy your life right where you are sitting. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy this church. We are, I am, you are all susceptible to attack on all sides through all kinds of temptations. He wants to pull you and me away from God in all kinds of trials. He wants to pull you and me away from God. He wants to get us away from the shepherd. Which means just like sheep don't need to sleep when a lion is on the prowl, we need to be watchful and alert, aware, 2 Corinthians 2, 11 says, of the devil's schemes. And don't think for a second that he's just on the prowl out in the world. He is on the prowl in the church. That's what 1 Peter is saying. Open your eyes and resist him. So I mentioned there are many different directions we could go like right now to apply this word to our lives, ways the adversary wants to attack our lives in the church. But the application I want to make specifically today is to the protection of children. So let's pause in the word, and I say that intentionally because what we're about to dive into for the next few minutes is not specifically spelled out in the word. Like we don't have verses that talk about specific rules and a child protection policy. Instead, what we're talking about at this point is our attempts to apply what we see in God's word in this particular area. 
And the reason I want to dive into this particular area is because it seems like every single week I read, we read stories in the newspapers, on TV, social media about child safety or abuse in our culture. It's like predators are innovating ways to sin at rates that are faster than schools, daycares, sports leagues, camps, and other places for children are innovating ways to protect. And this includes churches, which is why we need to talk about this in this setting. Some people would say, don't talk about this issue in this setting for a variety of reasons, but that's part of the problem. It's part of the problem that we don't talk about it. If we're going to be watchful, like 1 Peter 5, 8 says, we need to talk about it because we read stories of churches and even large churches with security departments and child protection policies like NBC that are not immune to attack. For example, some of you may recall a situation that occurred before I came here as pastor involving one adult here at the Tyson's campus who engaged in inappropriate communication and conduct as a volunteer from The Rock, our student ministry. A public letter was sent to many Tyson's parents, making them aware of this issue, outlining various steps the church had taken to address that situation, including reporting to and alerting law enforcement, removing that person from membership, and issuing that person a no trespass order. And that situation was a wake-up call in the church. It galvanized the church to do more training, to include fingerprinting as part of background checks, to make security improvements to facilities, other steps. But here's the deal. Yes, that situation was years ago. Yes, that volunteer is no longer in our church. And yes, these security improvements were good. But I've been meeting over months now with parents who are still hurting from that situation in the past. And they have raised good questions and concerns about how we can better protect children and students and train families. And I've increasingly come to realize that security steps we have taken have been a good start, but they are only the start, not the finish line. I believe we need to do more and better. So here's what I've put in motion just to make you aware. Months ago, I commissioned an outside group with expertise in helping churches and other organizations like churches protect children. I have asked them to evaluate all of our policies, procedures, and practices at NBC in the past, including that situation and the present, to make sure that we are doing everything we possibly can to protect children. And let me just say at this point that if you ever have any concerns about child safety issues, past or present, inside this or any church or outside the church, please contact someone immediately. Contact the police. Here at the church, I'm going to put a number on the screen that goes straight to our director of security who has served in law enforcement if you ever see or suspect anything as soon as possible, please notify an appropriate authority, this number, another leader in the church. Don't hesitate because 
You may see something, someone else may see something, and dots start to connect that need to connect. So to come back to this outside group, they are gonna be collaborating with our staff. We've already begun an extensive process with our staff and volunteers, not just so that our current protection is as up-to-date as possible, but so that we have an ongoing process in place for improving our protection in the days to come. We wanna be ahead of threats in our culture, not behind them. So yes, right now we have policies and background checks and fingerprinting for volunteers. We have camera setups in rooms, police presence in areas with minors, volunteers never being in a private room, including a bathroom alone with a minor, restrictions on digital social media communication between volunteers and minors. I could continue. The point is we need to continually improve and consistently implement these policies and procedures, which may mean inconvenience at different points, but that's part of the point of why I'm sharing all of this with you. So you might think, why, why are you diving into all this today? Like sharing all of this with us on a Sunday, if you've shared it with staff, isn't, isn't this their job? And the answer is, this is not just about staff. And it's not even just about volunteers. This is about all of us working together in the church to create a culture of care for kids and students. And having that kind of culture means we are all playing a part in it through giving like you do to support children's and student ministries, through interceding for the next generation, and through volunteering in kids and student ministry. These, these are formative years that we will never get back in our kids' lives. Most people come to faith in Jesus when they are a child. Those years are so important for how children and students view God, and we want them to know the love and protection and provision of God, and that involves all of us which means we need strong adult-to-child ratios in all of our kids and student ministries. Last week, since I wasn't preaching, I went around here at Tyson's just to thank different people for how they're serving. And I'll just say, we need more workers for children and students at all of our campuses. Singles, seniors, married couples with no children, worship during one service, serve in another and parents. Worship with your kids during one service, then let them go to age-appropriate activities while you're serving somewhere. We all need to own the care and protection of children. This isn't just this or that person's job. This is our job. We are a church family called by God to protect the, this flock, which is why I want to call today many more of you to care for our kids and teens and not to see this as a okay, I guess I'll serve in a small role like that. No, this is no small role. This is a giant role. Mrs. Romo, my first grade small group teacher, I'll never forget this senior adult woman teaching me the word week in and week out when I was in first grade. And I kept in touch with her after that such that when she died, her family asked me as a kid to sit with them at the funeral. My life today is the fruit of my first grade small group teacher. This is a giant role. I would say one of the most important roles we can play. Just ask Jesus, Matthew 18, 5, whoever receives one child in my name receives me. You want to receive Jesus? Care well for kids. And in our culture today, I would argue in any culture at any time, but especially today, caring for children means working together with vigilance. And let me add this, so if I could just speak 
specifically face-to-face, particularly with parents right now, this is not just an issue in the church. This is an issue in our homes and neighborhoods and in all the activities our kids are involved in. Here's what I mean by that. It's, it's interesting. In talking with this outside group already, they basically said that churches and families together need to be running child protection like we have a PhD in this area due to the changing cultural climate surrounding sexual immorality, social media, additional technologies, the ways predators adapt their approaches. So churches and families need to be operating with a PhD on child protection. The problem is right now, even churches that have worked hard and are ahead of the curve are operating at about a college freshman level. And the average family is behind that back in middle school or even elementary school. Meaning we don't just need to address this issue in the church. We need to address this issue in every facet of our kids' lives, to have conversations with them about this, obviously in age and developmentally appropriate ways, to talk about what it means to stay close to home, going into someone else's home, who to talk to when they're lost, how to not be caught in awkward situations for older kids and teens, understanding how predators think and act, what to do, who to speak to if someone does something inappropriate, knowing that harm thrives in privacy and predators know how to make that happen. And not to assume that just because you know someone, it's okay for them to be alone with your child. More than 80% of the time, victims know the person who is harming them. Harm like we're talking about most often takes place in the context of an ongoing relationship, which means that just because you know someone from church does not mean that rules that apply on the church campus should not apply off the church campus. So if they shouldn't be alone with your child on campus, should they be alone with your child off campus? As parents, we cannot assume that just because somebody volunteers at church, passes all these checks, or just because somebody's on staff or is called a pastor for that matter. We've all heard stories about spiritual leaders, those who are supposed to be spiritual leaders, manipulating their influence in children's lives for selfish ends. We could go on and on. We're going to have more trainings along these lines for parents. Let me encourage you, don't be too busy to attend those. And you know, I don't want to just speak to parents like as a pastor to students and children for a minute, like there's so much that I could say that I do say to my own kids, but that's just it. I want to encourage you. Students, kids, like talk with your parents and people you trust about how you can guard yourself and others from harm. Like harmful things like we're talking about today often happen when kids, teenagers get disconnected from their parents and people who love them. So don't be in that position. No matter how frustrated you or they may get at times, don't hide things in your life from the people God has put in your life who love and long to protect you. So kids, students, parents, church, we cannot hide from this, be casual about this, pretend it's not real. This is an ongoing battle that's not getting any easier and God has called us to care well for each other in the middle of it. And care is the right word. So over several months of meeting with those affected by the situation I mentioned from the past, I've been grieved not only by the hurt they have experienced, but also by the ways we could have cared better for them in the aftermath. 
in a time when they should have felt embraced and loved and supported by the church, they have felt marginalized, shamed, and even ignored. And that should not be. And I want to publicly apologize to them for the way we as a church have not better displayed the care of Christ for them. Even for how I, once I moved up here, could and should have done more to care for them. And I know I can't change the past, but I know we can change the future and how we care for them and how we care for each other because, well, I know that even going here, I'm speaking to many people right now who have been harmed like we're talking about today at some point in your life. And a significant percentage of you when you were a minor. And before I, I speak specifically to you, I want, I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, to seek out someone to share and process through what happened to you. And by all means, report it to appropriate authorities if you've not done that. No one is intended to walk through this alone. And I know there are different stories and different kinds and different degrees of abuse. And well, I just want to say, without going into details, I'm with you. And I want to say to you, based on the word of God, that what was done to you was wrong. Regardless of what kind of harm it was, physical, verbal, sexual, it was evil. You were sinned against. At a time when you were vulnerable, instead of being protected, you were violated. And you, you may feel like what happened to you now defines you that that is who you are, but that is not true. Because whoever harmed you and whatever happened to you do not define you. The God of the universe defines you. The God of the universe says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made in his image by him. And the God of the universe has come to you to this world of suffering in the person of Jesus. And he has defeated sin and suffering. Though he was completely innocent, Jesus knows what it's like to suffer at the hands of sinners. And he died, but then he rose again. And now he says to all who trust in him, you can cast your cares on me because I care for you. So just to be clear, we're totally back at God's word now. God's word to all who know Jesus and especially to those who have been harmed in these ways. Please hear this first truth. Jesus faithfully bears your burdens. When we see that word to cast your cares and anxieties on Jesus, the word is literally to throw something on something else or someone else. Like in Luke 19, when they throw coats on the donkey for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem on it, so hear this invitation. And so many people who have suffered harm have only two ways to deal with the past. One, try to cover it up with denial or busyness or whatever other avenues you can find. Or two, get 
stuck in memories that continually churn up anger and fear and terror. But there's another way. There's a third way to deal with the pain, and that's to pour out your heart to God, to cast all of your emotions and all of your aches, all of your questions and all of your confusion, all of your pain and all of your grief, and God says, I will bear that burden. The God of the universe says to you, your cares are my concern. It's interesting. This verse in 1 Peter is based on Psalm 55, 22, when the psalmist David had been betrayed by someone he trusted, which is likely the case if you've been harmed in these ways. And at the end of the psalm, David says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. In other words, in a world where people let you down and you have a hard time trusting anyone anymore, you can look up to the God of the universe and he says, I will always be faithful to you. God says, I will carry your burdens like a donkey carries baggage. You don't have to bury, bear this burden alone. Jesus will faithfully bear it for you as you call out to him. And as he bears your burdens, he will heal your hurts. Jesus graciously heals your hurts. 1 Peter 5.10 after you have suffered, the God of all grace will himself, and listen to these four words. They're like four synonyms, back to back to back to back. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That first word, you know what that word restore means in the original language of the New Testament? It means to put things right. This world is not right. What happened to you was not right. But one day, Jesus is going to make things right. One day, Jesus is going to enforce final justice and enact full redemption. Which compels me to pause for a moment here and turn my attention to anyone in the sound of my voice who has harmed someone else in these ways. Specifically a child or is harming someone now or is plotting to do so, I want to urge you to repent, to turn from sin. If that is in the past, turn from sin to God, the God of all grace, who will forgive you when you repent before him. Confess your sin to him and others, and to the extent with which it's applicable to humbly receive any consequences of that sin in this world. You will receive consequences. The question is, will you do now, do so now with mercy before God, or will you do so when it is too late in judgment before God? Turn from sin in the past, turn from sin in the present in the same way, turn from sin in the future. If you are tempted in any way toward harming others, seek help. If you are part of this church, call that number. We want to help you resist the devil and who wants to destroy you while using you to harm others. Resist him. Like Turn now. See God's grace in even bringing you here today pull you back to himself, away from destruction. 
Turn the God of all grace to the God who will one day make all things right. And to all who humbly look to him, Jesus graciously heals your hurt. So back to those who have been hurt in particular, hear this word from God, restore. Think Joel 2.25. I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. Jesus has power to restore you completely. Not just to heal your hurt and your pain, but to free you from anger and bitterness and all the other ways the devil would like to use your suffering to destroy you and drive you further away from God. Jesus has power to restore and redeem you to relationship with the God who not only defines your identity, he's the God who shapes your destiny. And your destiny is not ultimately a story of abuse or shame or suffering because Jesus ultimately guarantees your glory. Did you see it in 1 Peter 5.10? After you have suffered a little while, now I want to be careful here because the intent of this passage is not to minimize the pain and the hurt in the little while. The reality is that for these Christians, suffering sure seemed like it was lasting a long while. And it was hard. But compared to the eternal glory that was to come, it was a little while. And there was hope. Three times in this passage we read, we see glory. Verse 10 here at the end, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Now you might read that and think, that's talking about God's eternal glory. So David, why did you say Jesus guarantees my glory, our glory? Well, look back up in verse four, where Peter says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then back up in verse one, where he calls himself and all who are followers of Jesus a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. A partaker, what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that someone who shares, so it means someone who shares, participates in, experiences the glory that is going to be revealed. Remember Romans 8, 28? We cling to this verse all the time. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things, even the worst things, God has power to turn for good for his purpose. And what's his purpose? We'll keep going. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? glorified, meaning straight from the mouth of God, nothing, absolutely nothing that has happened to you or could ever happen to you can take away from you the glory that God has designed for you who trust in Jesus, which means that for you who trust in Jesus, sin or abuse will not have the last word. Because for all who trust in Jesus, there is coming a day when sin will be no more and abuse will be annihilated 
and shame, sorrow and suffering will be gone. Satan will be cast down and the true lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who is slain for our sins, the savior and shepherd of our souls will glorify us with him. And we will say to him belongs the dominion forever and ever. To the one who faithfully bears your burdens, graciously heals your hurts and ultimately guarantees your glory, to him belongs dominion forever and ever. So just to keep going in Romans 8, what then shall we say in response to this? In a world of suffering where we are susceptible to attack on all sides, here's what we say. If God is for us, who can stand against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or abuse? No because in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate you and me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, will you bow your heads with me? I want to invite everybody in this room and other campuses just to bow your heads and close your eyes. Before God, I want to ask you a question right where you're sitting. And it's the most important question I could possibly ask you. Have you trusted in Jesus to be the savior of your sin and the shepherd of your soul? It's the most important question I could ask and you could answer today. And if you cannot answer that question with a resounding yes in your heart, I wanna invite you to put your trust in Jesus today. Like right now, I wanna give you an opportunity right now to place your faith in him. Just to say right where you're sitting in your heart to God right now, dear God, I am a sinner. Like a sheep, I have strayed from you. But today, I trust that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. So I ask you now to forgive me of my sin against you and to restore me to relationship with you. And in this world of sin and suffering, in me and around me, I trust in you to shepherd my life with your strength and your care and your hope all the way to eternal glory. I want to be with you forever. Oh, with our heads still bowed, if you just prayed that to God, I want to invite you to do something in this room at other campuses. I want to invite you just with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you just pray that for God and put your faith in Jesus as the savior of your sin, shepherd of your soul today. And I wanna invite you just to lift up your hand where you are, just before God, just to say today, yes, I'm trusting in Jesus to save me from my sin. Oh God, you, you see not just hands, but hearts and lives. And praise you for those who are experiencing new life right now in Jesus. 
I pray that you would give them and others courage to celebrate new life in you through baptism, to publicly identify it with you. And God, I pray in light of all that we've walked through today, that for all of us, and particularly those who have experienced harm like we've talked about, that you would indeed bear burdens and heal hurts and help us to live in light of guaranteed glory to come. I, I, I pray for those who have harmed or are harming to repent and turn to you. And I pray, oh God, we pray together that you would help us to guard the flock, to care for one another, for each other, particularly for children and students among us, that we might know your care and protection through the way we love and care for each other in the church. May it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Anticipation, repentance, hope, joy. These are words that characterize the Advent season, a season in which Christians focus their attention on Christ's coming. On the one hand, we reflect back on Christ's first coming and his fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises of a Messiah. At the same time, we look forward to Christ's second coming when he'll put an end to sin and death once and for all. We want to invite you on a 25-day journey through Advent with our radical 2019 Advent Reading Guide. The goal of this free guide is to help individuals and families reflect on and respond to these important truths of the coming Messiah. Messiah. Advent begins four Sundays before Christmas, ends on Christmas Eve, December 24th. And this free guide provides 25 days of reading so you can begin on December 1st and finish on Christmas Day. Contained in each guide is a scripture reading and devotional reflection, as well as suggestions for how you and your family might pray in light of the truths that you've read. Also included are a variety of activities scattered throughout the guide that are aimed at helping families respond to these truths in ways that are interactive and engaging for children. We hope you join us on this 25-day journey. You can download the free Radical Advent Guide at our website, radical.net. Well, thanks again for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us there at radical.net.